Greetings, investors. I'm Rudy Bonaboli, and this is Guild's weekly global market commentary for the week ending June 14th, 2019. If you like what you hear today, please be sure to hit subscribe. You can find us on the web at www.guildinvestment.com, and you can find us in all the usual places for social media. So please be in touch. Uh, give us a call. Ask us your questions. We would love to respond to them. Last week, the Trump administration surprised both allies and adversaries by threatening to impose gradually escalating tariffs on Mexico. If implemented, these tariffs could have become the most significant of the administration's tariff actions thus far, given the dollar value of bilateral trade between the two countries, about $372 billion worth of Mexican exports to the U.S. and $300 billion in U.S. exports to Mexico in 2018 culminating at a 25% level if the administration were unsatisfied with Mexico's efforts to restrain the flow of migrants through the country and into the United States, these tariffs might have been disruptive in a way that the others have not yet really been, at least on a direct economic level. In the case of China, the administration's tariff proposals were aimed primarily at economic misbehavior, although China's geopolitical ambitions certainly provided a backdrop, urging that action was long overdue. In the case of Mexico, with the trade deal already nearly complete, the threatened tariffs were explicitly non-economic in motivation. They were focused on the administration's frustration with Mexico's inability or unwillingness to secure its southern and northern borders against migrant flows from the Northern Triangle region, comprised of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. All three of these countries are deeply troubled and politically dysfunctional, with endemic gang violence, a lack of the rule of law, and many would-be migrants who are desperately seeking political stability and economic opportunity in the United States. Of course, they also serve as transit points for contraband being transported from South America to the U.S., as investors consider and evaluate current events, it's important for them to bear in mind the larger context within which these events are occurring. The troubles that Mexico is currently experiencing and which are exasperating its northern neighbor are far from new. Indeed, they are simply the modern iteration of troubles that have plagued Mexico since long before modern Mexico existed. Culture certainly plays a role in the relative economic development of the United States and Mexico, as we have often observed. Cultural capital, such as the rule of law, is particularly important as an enabler of economic growth and national wealth. However, geographic considerations are also significant, and here Mexico and the United States differ widely. Mexico's core territory from which its governing authorities have had to project power since before the arrival of European colonists, is small and limited, and surrounded by mountains to the east and west, desert to the north, and jungle to the south, that are inherently extremely challenging to control and to defend against internal and external threats. The desert territory of Mexico's north is some of North America's most desolate, while it provides a natural buffer against any enemies to the north, it also has historically been the seat of domestic insurrections, challenging the core from which the Mexican state has projected its power. Mexico City has been the center of power since the time of the Aztecs. The site of the city was chosen in spite of its somewhat inauspicious nature, with problematic water supply and prone to earthquakes, because it is centrally located for the control of the Mexican high plateau lying to its north. 
Its central location also permits a control over the coastal region to the southeast, Veracruz, which is the obvious avenue from which foreign invaders would seek to conquer Mexico. This is not just a distant colonial experience. In the mid-1800s, as the Spanish Empire collapsed across Latin America, the French took advantage of the chaos to conquer Mexico and installed an emperor in Mexico City in 1864. They successfully invaded the Central Corps from Veracruz. The adventure of France's rule of Mexico only lasted three years, but it drives home the point that Mexico feels vulnerable from its eastern coast. Since it cannot compete militarily with the United States, it relies on U.S. hegemony over the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico to feel secure, and thus must remain in the U.S.'s good graces in the face of this basic geographic vulnerability. Even with Mexico's core secured, the Mexican state, whoever was ruling it, has always struggled to control the territories around that core. As noted above, the inhospitable terrain to the northwest and east of the core has always hosted rebels and would-be rebels against the Mexican state. The southern border is inhospitable in another way. Its jungle is difficult to navigate and historically presented few prospects for economic development since it is agriculturally poor. The Mexican state has been content to neglect it. It has always been more trouble than it's worth. Unlike the United States, Mexico has no significant navigable river systems to facilitate trade. While the United States is bisected by the Mississippi River and has many other economically significant river systems that aided the development of trade and exports in the early 19th century, Mexico lacked this natural endowment and missed almost a century of critical development until the beginning of railway construction in the 1880s. Mexico's Spanish rulers invested virtually nothing in building up Mexican infrastructure during the first phases of the Industrial Revolution, viewing the country as a storehouse from which to extract materials. They were still functioning on the old mercantilist model and had not adopted the growth-positive views of the first British economists, such as Adam Smith. The early lack of easy access to export markets meant that Mexico's development of a culture of private investment was delayed, with effects still to be seen today. This historical pattern also resulted in Mexico's ultimate dependence on oil revenues, leading the country to fall into a similar pattern to many other oil-rich nations, nationalization of the industry, over-dependence on energy for government revenue, and insufficient reinvestment of energy revenues in the industry to support future growth and development. Even now, it requires a constant investment of capital to keep transportation infrastructure functioning in Mexico, and with low growth and capital access hindered by government corruption, that infrastructure continues to lag behind, exacerbating the economic attraction of crime and corruption and hindering the government's ability to encourage growth and maintain the rule of law. The difficulty of suppressing endemic banditry and revolt in hard-to-control areas around Mexico's core has typically caused the Mexican state to respond with the rule of strongmen. This 19th century tradition took on a new form in the 20th century after the Mexican Revolution with what was effectively single-party rule by the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, which stood basically unchallenged from 1929 to 2000. This tradition of strongman rule and single-party rule encouraged cronyism and corruption in a constant struggle for effective Mexican governance and in turn helped further suppress economic growth, dynamism, and the emergence of a more business-friendly political culture. The drug cartels, 
which have so deeply embedded themselves in northern Mexico are nothing but a modern manifestation of the same bandits and rebels who have so strongly influenced northern Mexico since before the Mexican Revolution, and indeed who provided the base from which the revolution was launched. Even the Aztecs struggled to subdue the tribes who lived to the north of the high plateau. Since the end of the pre's unchallenged rule in 2000 with the election of Vicente Fox, the old patterns have been disrupted, and while that's good in the long run, it has been troublesome in the near term. Sometimes, dependable dysfunction is preferable to unpredictability. The pre's long-term modus vivendi with cronies and criminals was disrupted, and this probably led to the early 2000s surge of drug cartel violence as old relationships were broken and new competing groups emerged. This is the subtext and the background when Mexican officials talk about the difficult or sensitive nature of their attempts to stem the flow of migrants. The reality is that Mexico's southern and northern borders are both poorly controlled, and indeed they have been poorly controlled regions since long before the state of Mexico existed. Both are inhospitable, the government has historically ignored the South because of its poverty and has historically struggled to control the North even though it felt a geopolitical imperative to do so. These difficulties are compounded by Mexico's economic and political situation in which corruption, cronyism, slow growth, and long single-party rule have stunted the development of the kinds of political institutions that would create solutions for a government in different circumstances. Whatever else we can say, we are confident that the U.S. administration is well aware of the difficulties Mexico faces, both acute and chronic, and how deeply rooted they are in Mexican geopolitics and political and economic history. The administration also certainly knows that the dysfunction of the Mexican state makes Mexican politicians keenly aware behind the facade of newsworthy performances of their deep need to stay in the good graces of the U.S. for political and economic stability. This makes us even more confident that the administration would not be making such demands unless, one, they judged the likely success of the pressure tactics to be very high, and two, that they would be satisfied with a realistic level of compliance from the Mexican government. The U.S. knows that a Mexican political and geopolitical reality that took centuries to create will not be fixed overnight, and they will be realistic, as we are already seeing, as news about Mexico's cooperation continues to become public. Don't panic about the administration's tariff threats against Mexico. Mexico's problems are deep-rooted and long-lasting, and we believe that the administration is pragmatic enough to be satisfied with realistic expectations of improvements to Mexico's internal and border security. Here's our market summary for the week. The U.S. stock market began June with a rally, with greater prospects for a friendly Federal Reserve and relief over the settlement of possible trade troubles with Mexico, at least for now. The amelioration of these overhangs and concerns causes us to continue to be bullish on U.S. stocks in preference to most other global stock markets. Tech stocks have rallied strongly in the U.S. While we think that there are likely regulatory concerns for big tech moving forward, we view the market's reaction as overdone. Indeed, we might ultimately welcome the breakup of some U.S. tech giants. It could create value for shareholders, although we view this eventuality as unlikely and distant, even if it ever actually occurs. Under current circumstances, we believe the year's high for U.S. stocks will lie in the second half of the year. We are modestly bullish on emerging markets. For the current rally, we generally prefer the U.S., 
One long-term exception is India, where Narendra Modi's recent re-election victory presents the prospect of substantial improvements that will ultimately allow investors in India to reap more of the benefits of that country's first-in-class economic growth. Our last two letters outlined some of the reasons for our optimism and some of the reforms that Modi could cement to lead to these improvements. Investor sentiment in China has not collapsed, and we believe domestic Chinese shares have potential in the event of a trade deal announcement between China and the United States. We also have not seen the leverage that characterized the Chinese market before the bursting of the last bubble in 2015. Still, for newly deployed funds, we would favor the U.S. over China. Gold continues to show bullish technical patterns. Chinese central bank gold buying was stronger in the first quarter of 2019 than it has been for six years, and we continue to note, as we have pointed out for several weeks, that many central banks are buying gold. Central banks worldwide are accumulating gold, and they are also either easing monetary policy, preparing to ease, or communicating their willingness to ease in response to economic conditions. All of this helps support the price of gold. Thanks for listening to us today. We welcome your calls and questions. Find us on the web at guildinvestment.com. Send us an email, guild at guildinvestment.com. Give us a call. Find us on social media. We would love to hear your comments and your questions. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.